Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constan from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as a principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health and diabetes outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I am Elise Karen, Practice Improvement Coaching Lead for Cardio's Team Best Practices and Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Today's podcast will explore how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected patients' use of substances, particularly alcohol, and how to approach assessment and treatment of these conditions. We will also discuss how substance use can affect chronic diseases and patient outcomes. With me today is Dr. Shanna Stryker. Dr. Stryker is a physician and assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati. She is double board certified in family medicine and psychiatry and works in a federally qualified health center in Cincinnati, serving primarily a Medicaid population. She has experience providing medication-assisted treatment in both specialized outpatient addiction treatment programs and within the primary care setting. Welcome, Dr. Stryker. Thank you. So, Dr. Stryker, many of our patients have turned to unhealthier coping mechanisms to deal with their stress. How do we talk to our patients about alcohol and tobacco use and how this may have changed during the pandemic? So, I think it's really important to be open with our patients about where what we're observing in the communities during the pandemic. And it also can make sure that we have the opportunity to identify anything that we should be worried about that could impact their health. And so I will explain to patients, even before they have identified a problem, that a lot of my patients are struggling with stress right now. They're more isolated than ever before, and they're very worried about the pandemic. They feel like they're constantly getting new and conflicting news about what they should and shouldn't be doing, and that this is really increasing the stress that they're feeling in their lives. Some people are then taking this stress and they're using more alcohol or they're smoking more tobacco in order to combat that stress. And so they're self-treating for their stress with these substances. And so I'll let people know that I'm observing this in a lot of individuals and that is an opening for screening when I am talking to my patients about substance use, particularly during the pandemic. Some folks then I'll then describe how even short-term increases in use of substances such as alcohol can lead to an increased risk for addiction over their lifetime. And so this is something that you should take seriously and something that can really progress and get out of control pretty quickly. And so when we're noticing that individuals are drinking more alcohol, they'll sometimes have worse sleep, they might be gaining weight, and they might find that they're not making the same decisions they otherwise would when they weren't drinking so much. All of these can lead to even more stress, and it just becomes a vicious cycle. I've also noticed that it can impact the health of individuals, and that's causing increased stress itself because people are a little bit more afraid to access health services, but they might know already at home, especially if they have chronic illnesses, that their blood pressure has been going up and that their sugar levels have been going up. And that can be from the alcohol itself, that can be from the stress itself, and again, you get caught in this vicious cycle where then noticing those things causes even more stress. So the risk for chronic illness and then the degree to which I'm seeing the chronic illness become a source of stress in their lives has been increasing during the pandemic. Dr. Stryker, how has COVID-19 affected individuals with substance use disorders? 
So I've been really worried about my patients that struggle with substance use disorders even more than usual during the pandemic. I'm noticing in some regional data is also showing that this is true across populations, that there's increased use in general of many substances during the pandemic. So I'm noticing that people are finding that they're more isolated and sometimes they have less to do and less structure in their days. A lot of my patients have unfortunately lost their jobs because of the pandemic and they might not have quite as much social interaction, which provided some structure in their lives. All of this is leading to stress. All of this is leading to boredom. And sometimes that's causing an increase in substance use in those with active substance use disorders. And it's definitely leading to relapse in some of my patients who have substance use disorders who had been doing pretty well leading up to the pandemic. Even worse is I'm really worried about my patients who have injection drug use because I'm noticing that because they're more isolated, they might be using without other people around. And so they might be more likely to overdose, but especially more likely to die if they do overdose, because there aren't people around who can activate emergency services to help reverse that overdose or to use naloxone that they might have on hand to help reverse the overdose of this individual. So I've been really worried about my patients that have substance use disorders. And on top of all of that, I'm noticing that there's worse access to treatment. And so a lot of people move from in-person to virtual treatment, but that's not an option for everyone. And so they've been less able to engage in substance use treatment if they had been engaged in it. So they're falling out of care. Or if they are newly had a relapse or had not been in care before, they're having trouble accessing treatment for the first time because of some of the changes that have been necessary due to the pandemic. And how does alcohol use impact cardiovascular disorders and diabetes? So alcohol has both direct and indirect effects on health that are relevant to individuals with cardiovascular disorders and diabetes. I noticed that alcohol can worsen some of the risk factors that lead to these chronic conditions. And so, for instance, I'm seeing more hypertension in individuals that drink a lot of alcohol. I'm seeing some insulin resistance from the alcohol itself, which can contribute to diabetes or worsen diabetes. Some folks with severe alcohol use disorders have real nutritional deficiencies, and that's going to also make some of these conditions worse. And then also, we know that these substances and alcohol in particular can cause secondary psychiatric disorders. And so I'll see secondary anxiety disorders, secondary mood disorders such as depression related to the substance use itself. And we do know that individuals who have worse anxiety, who have worse depression, are going to have more difficulty managing their chronic illness, such as their chronic cardiovascular disease, such as their diabetes. And so all of that is going to contribute to worse outcomes. In addition to all of that, alcohol can have direct impacts on cardiovascular health and diabetes. And so I worry about arrhythmias, worsening coronary artery disease, heart failure, and in individuals who binge drink, I'm even additionally worried about stroke. Dr. Stryker, what is the best way to screen patients for substance use disorder? In general, I'm a big proponent of universal screening, and especially during this pandemic, I think that primary care practices should incorporate universal screening. And I do think that it's helpful to let patients know that you do this in everyone. That way people don't feel particularly targeted because it is important to ask everyone. And even if it's negative, I haven't had too many patients that get offended that we're doing the screening. And in fact, if the initial screening is negative, you just move on pretty quickly. And as long as they know this is something you do for everyone, some people actually appreciate it because they might have friends or families that struggle with substance use disorders. So even if it's not relevant to them, people like to know that you're taking that part of people's wellness seriously. 
And so once you incorporate screening into your practice, there are some ways to do it even within a busy primary care practice. And so the CAGE screening, which is an acronym, is one way that I think it can be really helpful to quickly identify problem drinking. And so again, CAGE is an acronym and it's four different questions. And so that's going to stand for cut down, annoy, guilt, an eye-opener. And I'll give you an example of what those four questions would look like. So if I were going to do a cage screening in an individual, I would say, you know, have you ever felt like you should cut down on your drinking? Has anyone else annoyed, bothered, or nagged you about your drinking? Have you ever felt guilty or bad about your drinking? And has it ever gotten to the point that you had to drink in the morning in order to feel better because you had the shakes or because you were feeling hungover? And so you were taking the hair of the dog approach. And so those four questions are pretty quick to ask. And so the E eye opener, you can notice is not directly in the question, but an eye opener is when someone is having a morning drink because they're combating the effects of alcohol from the night before. And so C is cut down, A would be annoyed, G guilty, and then the E for cage is eye opener. So that's a pretty quick screening that can help you identify some red flags for problematic drinking. And then, especially if your primary care clinic's electronic medical record has this capability, there are some other screenings that might be easy to actually incorporate into your process, particularly the rooming process. And so the audit is one that you might hear about that's related to alcohol use. And then the DAST is one that's related to drug use. And those are relatively quick screenings that even your staff, your medical assistant, or your nurse can do on rooming. And then you could always follow up with the CAGE questionnaire if there's a positive screen um, in order to make sure that you're, you're screening individuals and then hearing a little bit more about their story. And that helps you know if you need to take further action. And what are the next steps if a patient screens positive? So if the patient screens positive, I'm thinking, is this a mild problem? Is it a moderate problem? Or is it a severe problem? And some of these validated screening tools, such as the audit and the DAS that I had referenced earlier, actually have a scoring system that's pretty easy to find if you look for scoring instructions that will actually put the numbers directly into that range. And so if someone has a mild or moderate substance use disorder... What I'm going to do is I'm going to start with in-office brief interventions. And so some people might have heard of the acronym ESPERT. And so the S in ESPERT stands for screening. So that's what we talked about recently. BI is going to be brief intervention. And so that's what we'll get more into in a second. And then RT is referral to treatment. So ESPERT, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment related to substance use disorders. So a brief intervention is what's indicated if someone has a mild or moderate substance use disorder. And so what I'm going to do for a brief intervention is either I'm going to incorporate some of my interdisciplinary staff, such as social workers, such as counselors, and they can often be very helpful in doing brief interventions. If that's not available in my primary care practice, what I might do is do some motivational interviewing. And so that's a technique that I'll employ as a brief intervention that helps move people towards better wellness and then healthier behaviors. If someone has a severe substance use disorder that I've identified on screening, that's when I'm going to jump straight to referral to treatment. And so I'm going to recommend that they receive care in a specialized setting. But I'll warn you that some people aren't quite ready for that. They're, they're not ready. They're not at the right stage of change that they're ready for that next step. And so I still might have to use techniques such as motivational interviewing in order to move towards the stage in which the patient is ready to be referred to treatment and actually act engage in treatment with a referral rather than say thank you for my time with the referral walk away and never actually complete the referral 
So the other thing that I'm going to talk about for individuals that have a severe substance use disorder and maybe even a moderate substance use disorder is I'm going to talk about harm reduction techniques. And so I'm actually going to do some counseling that's going to make sure that even while they're actively using that some of the harm from that substance use disorder is going to be minimized. Dr. Stryker, what is harm reduction? Can you give an example Yeah, so harm reduction is going to be different depending on which substance the individual is using. And so for opioid use disorder, for instance, the way that my harm reduction counseling is going to work when I identify an individual with a severe substance use disorder is I'm going to say, you know what, for your opioid use disorder, while we're trying to get you into better, more robust treatment, let's talk about how you can stay safe. I'm worried about you obtaining and coming into contact with diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C, because that can be very common in individuals who are using opioids. So let's make sure that you're not in a position in which you ever have to share supplies with someone else who might have one of those illnesses. I'm going to look and see if there's a syringe exchange program nearby. And at those syringe exchange programs, they're often going to not just have new syringes, not just new needles. They're also going to have things such as pipes, straws, cookers, all kinds of things that are going to make sure that any potential tools that that individual is using as a part of their substance use is going to be clean. And if it ever has to be shared, which hopefully it shouldn't have to be, that it's going to be something that's a one-time use and and, um, they're going to be able to stay safe and minimize their exposure to infectious diseases. Some of those syringe or needle exchange programs are also going to have things such as naloxone and fentanyl strips. And so I want them to have that. They can test whether the drugs they have have fentanyl in it, which is more potent. They can have naloxone on hand so that a friend, if a friend is nearby, they can use naloxone if they overdose. And frankly, just because they might have friends that are using opioids, they likely do. And so they're going to have naloxone to help their friends out who might be overdosing. So that's going to be a big emphasis for mine for individuals with opioid use disorder. If they are not going to be able to engage well in a syringe exchange program, I'm going to make sure they know that it's important to clean their syringes regularly to decrease the chance of infectious disease exposure. If they're smoking, I'm going to make sure they know, I'm going to make sure to remind them to be cleaning their smoking supplies regularly. I'm going to tell them that they should be preparing the drugs that they're using themselves rather than having other people do it. That's sometimes a little bit more hygienic as long as they're being careful to wash their hands. And frankly, then they know what's in it because there's all kinds of adulterants that can be put into drugs and making sure that they sort of know that it's being done in a way that is going to decrease their chance of exposure to other diseases. And frankly, the amount also, because you don't want someone unintentionally overdosing. And if someone else is helping prepare their drugs, that's really easy for it to happen. I'm going to make sure that individuals that are using opioids aren't injecting alone so that, again, if there is an unintentional overdose, there's someone nearby who can use naloxone and who can call the emergency services so that they can um, hopefully not die from that overdose. And then lastly, I'm going to make sure that people have condoms on hand because, again, some of these diseases are going to be sexually transmitted as well. And when inhibition goes down, that can be a major problem. Um, In particular, actually, I'm more worried about that in individuals with alcohol use disorder. They're less likely to have sexual dysfunction from their substance use. And similarly, alcohol can decrease your planning and individuals who are using alcohol can have more impulsivity and so their decision making changes. And so I want to make sure that they have condoms available because you never know what's going to happen and that's going to decrease the risk of sexually transmitted diseases. That's going to decrease the risk of unintentional pregnancy. 
other advice I'm going to give individuals with alcohol use disorder, that would be an example of harm reduction, is going to be not to drink and drive. Most people know that, but I think just reminding people, don't drink and drive, heavy machinery, don't be caring for others such as small children or older adults when you're intoxicated. Make sure that you're not taking some important medications at the same time that you plan to be drinking and intoxicated because you might not take the right dose. Make sure that you're eating while you're drinking and or alternating a drink with water just to make sure that they are staying hydrated, making sure they're drinking in safe environments. You know, you don't want them outside uh, somewhere where they could accidentally wander into the road because they're intoxicated. They should be in a safe environment when their decision making might go down and lead to more unsafe behaviors. Um, some people I'll tell them, you know, set an end time, like I'm never going to drink after this certain hour or before this certain hour. And that can help people moderate the amount that they're drinking. And then also making sure that especially with something like alcohol, if you buy less, there's going to be less around. And it takes a lot of activation energy to go to the store and get more. And so just frankly, having less available is going to help you cut down on the amount that you're using. And how do you determine when someone needs inpatient versus outpatient treatment? That's a really big question. That can be pretty tricky, actually. It depends a lot on which substance they're struggling with and depends on a lot of other factors. And so when I'm thinking about detox, for instance, I am particularly worried about alcohol detox if they've had many, many years of drinking um, it's a very high volume of drinking, and especially I'm thinking about their comorbidities. So alcohol withdrawal can be fatal, right? And so that's something that I'm really worried, especially in individuals that have cardiovascular disorders or diabetes. I'm really worried about the fluctuation in blood pressure and heart rate that can happen during withdrawal. And so I want that to be medically monitored if people have a lot of medical comorbidities. Underlying seizure disorders also is another thing that I really worry about in people going through detox. And so that's another time in which I'm very much going to push for an inpatient detox for someone with alcohol use disorder. For opioid use disorder, that detox is really, really uncomfortable. It is typically not incredibly dangerous unless someone has other medical comorbidities, though. So similarly, if someone has significant cardiovascular disease or really fragile, brittle diabetes, that's when I'm really worried about them going through opioid detox on their own in an unsupervised environment. And so those would be times in which for detox, I'm thinking, you know, this really needs to be inpatient. Other times I'll be thinking something that's sometimes called inpatient or residential treatment is for someone who doesn't necessarily need to go through detox or who already went through detox, but really has failed outpatient treatment a lot. And so some individuals just don't do well if there's not a lot of structure around them and they're really going to need an intense program that's residential or quote unquote inpatient. And so that's when I really think that once someone has failed good outpatient treatment, then that's the time to escalate services. That being said, there are a lot of folks with substance use disorders who can really benefit from outpatient treatment. And there's a range of different options for outpatient treatment. Sometimes that's just meeting with a counselor and doing some talk therapy, you know, once a, every two weeks, once a month. But that can go all the way up to what's called IOP or intensive outpatient treatment. And that's in which there's individual counseling and there's groups. It's often three times a week at the start. And then you sort of graduate from different levels and, and that scales out. Um, and sometimes 
services or, or places that have intensive outpatient treatment can also have some medication-assisted treatment options. And so there will be clinicians that are prescribing medications that can help that individual overcome their substance use disorder treatment. So many people can actually in the long term do really well with outpatient treatments. For inpatients, mostly just the acute detox that I'm really thinking about comorbidities, or if they've failed time and time again outpatient treatment, that's when it's time to think about residential. So that's a great segue into our next question. So in Ohio specifically, how do you go about getting someone with Medicaid or no insurance linked to addiction services such as inpatient or outpatient detox or intensive outpatient therapy and housing urgently as they are often homeless or have unstable housing? So as I said before, there can be a big range in the types of treatment that individuals are going to require, need, and qualify for. And so when I think about the individual who's going to need some outpatient counseling, but it doesn't necessarily need to be super intensive counseling, I might actually even start with a private practice because frankly, those can sometimes be the easiest to get into and have the best availability. And there's a surprising amount of providers that will take different types of Ohio Medicaid. And I think individuals just never think to look in private practices. But so the way that you might find a private practice therapist that can work on your patient's addiction with them is actually through a search engine. And so there's a website called psychologytoday.com. And that's a really nice website in which you can go in there, you put in the zip code for the patient, you can filter by the insurance they have, and all the different types of Ohio Medicaid are listed on there. And then you can even, there's usually a button that says issues, and you could choose addiction addiction underneath that. And that's going to allow you to sort by people by professionals who have self-described expertise in treating addiction. Again, that's self-described though. And so one trick that you should know how to do in order to make sure that you're getting your patient into someone who's probably going to really be able to do a good job is you look at the letters after the name. And in Ohio, and as in all states, there's a lot of different qualifications and a lot of different letters that can be behind the names of psychotherapists because there's a lot of different pathways to training. The letters that you want to look for behind a professional's name that will let you know that you're going to be connecting your patient with someone who has gone through rigorous additional training to help them specifically with addiction is going to be L-I-C-D-C. And so that stands for Licensed Independent Chemical Dependency Counselor. And so that is someone who is at the highest level of chemical dependency counselor training in working with individuals with substance use disorders. There are other ones that have that are different combinations of CDC, such as CDC3, CDC2, things like that. Those are also individuals who have gone through specific licensure related to chemical dependency counseling, but it's not quite as robust. You know, they're not the supervisors. And um, so LICDC is really cream of the crop in terms of master's level individuals who have done additional training in making sure that they can treat substance use disorders. So that's a good place to start for individuals who might not need super intense outpatient treatment. If you are looking for something that's a little bit more intense, you're looking for residential, you're looking for inpatient detox, or you're looking for intensive outpatient treatment. So that is going to be a different place that you're going to find more robust services. And thankfully, there's a couple of national level search engines, though, that Ohio providers are pretty well represented on. And you'll just have to do a little bit more work to make sure that they take Medicaid, but the search engines are usually really transparent about what types of treatment that they accept. And so the first place that I look is going to be on SAMHSA's website. And SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So again, this is a federal agency. 
And so their website's really easy to remember, findtreatment.gov. And that's a great place where you can, again, plug in zip code and it's going to come up with a whole lot of different services related to substance use disorder treatments. And um, it's going to sort it by the different types of services offered. And it's really helpful to actually have a list that, you know, is just in your office also from that website. This is a great job for students, by the way. And so in a busy primary care practice, you don't have time to be sitting there doing all this Googling for your patient. But I find that I just really love to use my students this way. They are eager to help. And so having them, hey, can you just make sure that you find some options for us? And just keeping a running list of that. You might even make it a Word document that you have laying around that has just the local options. And you can even have checklists for like what insurances they take or what services they offer. And so I find the students actually love it because it's a very so helpful to your patients and it's something that they can do. Um, and they learn a lot, frankly, doing, going through that about how navigating the system is. For individuals that specifically have alcohol use disorder, there's another service that I think is actually a little bit better because there's a lot more education on the website about what the different options mean, how to tell if a service or a program is good and high quality. And so that's going to be through the NIAAA, and that's the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And so for them, you can find treatment by going to alcoholtreatment.niaaa.nih.gov. And we'll make sure that all these websites are available to you on the website. And so you can go to our website and you can find them written down because I, I understand if you're listening to this while driving like I tend to do, you're not going to be able to write this down. So feel free to reference the website for these. But I think that that website is particularly good at um, helping people navigate what their options are and figuring out what makes sense for them. There's even some self-help things. It's called the program's called Rethinking Drinking that's on that website. And there's a, there's even little like almost workbooks that people can print off for free. And uh, it's not quite self-help, but it helps people really think about what's happening with their alcohol use disorder and what the next steps are going to be. Um, so I find those resources to be really helpful for individual for helping find someone treatment who has Medicaid in Ohio. Another service that I think can be really helpful, particularly if individuals have other social needs that are getting in the way of them in their journey to recovery, is two more resources that help specifically find housing. And you can also find things like transportation, you can find food, you can find all kinds of different resources on these websites. But there's two of them. One is called, it's actually called, it was originally called Aunt Bertha. But um, the easier way to remember that is www.findhelp.org. So again, thankfully, something that's very easy to remember. And if you plug in your zip code in there, you can click which type of services you're looking for for your patients. And it's going to tell you what different agencies that are in your local area have said um, they offer within different categories. And so it's you can look up housing. You can even look up substance use services. And sometimes that's the easiest place to find what's called sober living houses. And these are places where individuals who are real serious about their recovery but don't have stable housing can go. And um, they have to be committed to recovery and because it's a really intense program usually, but it's, it's essentially a version of a residential program. Um, some of them are more residential light, but some of them are, are really intense and there's a lot of expectations. So that's one place that you can go if individuals are having, for instance, housing issues that are getting in the way of their recovery. And the other one is something called Relink. And so you find this by going to needs.relink, R-E-L-I-N-K dot org. And that's another place you can go that is going to help you connect services to your client if they have issues such as housing issues that are getting in the way of their recovery. 
So Dr. Stryker, you mentioned mutual support options. What are those? Yeah, so NA and AA are mutual support services that can be really helpful for individuals. For alcohol use disorders, some people it can be life-changing and that's all that they frankly need and that and they can really recover from their alcohol use disorder with just some of these mutual support services. Other folks that have, for instance, opioid use disorder, I really honestly see this as um, an augmentation to the other services that they're connected with. And so, um, but I do think it can be really critical to people's recovery. My favorite feature of these mutual support services are going to be the fact that you often get linked with a sponsor. And so that's someone who's the same gender as the individual who's seeking services, but is more senior and has been longer in their recovery. And so they serve as a they serve as really a mentor. And so they're available when that person is sitting there being tempted, being offered their substance by an individual. And I think, frankly, that's better than just about anything else you can do. Um, these are also called 12-step programs because it's a pretty robust program that people work through. And so they call it working through their steps. And, so, and there's 12 different steps to recovery. And so um, those are some of the, the terms you might hear about this. So NA stands for Narcotics Anonymous and AA stands for Alcoholics Anonymous. And so these are groups in which everyone there is in recovery and often in various stages of their recovery. And they are working through a regimented program together. And they often are introducing themselves by name. But again, there's an anonymous component to it where this is a private. Many of the meetings are closed. Um, sometimes they're open to other individuals from the community. But really, this is a, a personal private space. And so individuals can really find benefit from building a community of individuals that are similarly working on recovery. When you're in recovery, you often have to turn your back on a lot of your friends because many of your friends might still have active substance use disorders. And so these mutual support programs can really be critical to rebuilding a community, especially a sober network, because finding a sober network can be challenging for folks. And there's a lot of other versions, too, of mutual support programs that I think people haven't thought of. So a lot of people have heard of AA or Alcoholics Anonymous or NA or Narcotics Anonymous, but there's a whole bunch of different ones. And even within those groups, every group is different because it depends who shows up, right? And so some people will have tried one AA, it didn't go very well. And so they say, I'm not an AA person. But I say, hey, you know what, there's a bunch of AAs around you. I, I do live in an urban area. So there are a lot more options probably than in rural areas. But I say, you know what, you didn't like that one. Why don't you try another one? Maybe just that wasn't your crowd. And um, I encourage people to do a little bit of shopping around until they find a group that fits for them. But sometimes I'll tell them, hey, why don't you check out a different type of mutual support group because that one didn't work out for you. Both AA and NA have a spiritual component and it's not necessarily a certain religious component, but they do talk a lot about spirituality. That's critical for a lot of people in their recovery. But for some people, they might have some frankly religious trauma. And so that's something that they're really not wanting to hear about and they're not wanting to engage with and they wouldn't find that therapeutic. And so one of the secular options that might be better for some folks is what's called smart recovery. And so they have a pretty robust online community and then some local meetings also. And they similarly have a pretty regimented program and it's, it's all mutual support. So smart recovery is one option. There's also women for sobriety. And so that is a great option for women, especially who are survivors of trauma, because many women with substance use disorders are survivors of trauma, specifically sexual trauma. And so they're not going to find it therapeutic to go to an AA group and be surrounded by men that might trigger some of their trauma. So women for sobriety can be really critical for some women that are in recovery. And that is something that they also, again, have a pretty good online community and a few in-person meetings. But so they have some options as well, but definitely worth checking out for individuals, especially if they have Internet access. 
There's also moderation management. And so that is a group that is focused on drinking alcohol. And the goal for many of the individuals who are there is not complete sobriety, but it's cutting down and moderating the amount that they're drinking. And you might have patients where that's their goal. They are planning on continuing to have a drink every now and again. And frankly, that's not very welcomed in things like AA. And so they might find a more supportive community at a moderation management group or community. And so that's another thing people can look into. Celebrate Recovery is another one that I found to be in Southwest Ohio. We have several groups around for that, especially in the rural areas. And so that is a Christian-focused mutual support group. And so often the meeting is going to be held in churches. And the opposite of what I said for Smart Recovery, some people find that their faith is absolutely critical to their recovery. And that is a big part of their values. And they are not going to be able to engage well in recovery unless that is a significant part of it. They want to talk about it. They want to engage in that. They want a religious community and a religious environment as they are going through their journey of recovery. So Celebrate Recovery is a nice place that individuals who are Christian can find that type of a recovery community. There are other versions that are that are more local that you might be able to find and some of the websites that I previously shared might allow you to um, find some of those resources. And then lastly, there's a few things such as Al-Anon and Naranon. And so those are going to be for the family members, friends, and loved ones of individuals that are struggling with substance use disorders. And so it's not for the individual that's in recovery themselves. It's for the family members who sometimes have been through a lot with that individual. And um, all the other attendees are going to be family, friends, and loved ones. And so people can really find that they are able to have some healing when they attend groups such as Al-Anon or Naranon. Dr. Stryker, you mentioned some programs being available online. How can patients find online or virtual options? Yeah, thankfully, there are a lot of online or virtual options, which has been really critical during the pandemic, some of which was available even before the pandemic and so was really important for individuals who had poor transportation, for instance. I think some of these groups that I had mentioned didn't have much of an online presence prior to the pandemic, but a lot of people have really stepped up because, as we talked about, there have been some worrisome trends in alcohol use and tobacco use in um, overdoses and deaths from opioid use disorder. And so many of these mutual support groups really have stepped up to the plate. Any of these organizations that I mentioned, almost all of them are going to have some online or virtual options. And if you go to the website for any of them, you can often, there's often a button that says find meetings in which you can put in your zip code, but you can often filter that by virtual options also, which can be very helpful. And what can patients do if they don't have internet access? And that's an even bigger challenge. And I think we all as busy primary care doctors during the pandemic have noticed that some patients who can't do virtual visits, if our office has enabled that, have really struggled to continue to engage in care and we have trouble reaching them. Thankfully, there are some telephone-based options for individuals struggling with substance use disorders. So many of these same organizations I've already mentioned also have telephone-based options for groups. Um, it's not quite the same. It does, it's not a replacement for in-person groups, but it might be the only option during the pandemic. And so as I talked about, you can go to find meetings at most of the websites. There often is a filter also for telephone-based meetings. And some of them, such as Women for Sobriety, seem to even have um, an additional program in which it's not quite groups that they're holding over phone, but there's other phone-based support that's available. Again, especially during the pandemic, it seems there's some new options that are solely based on, on telephones and don't require at-home internet. What if our patients are concerned about relatives? As I've mentioned, there's things such as Al-Anon and Naranon, and so those are for families of individuals in recovery. Many of them are also open to individuals 
whose family members are not quite ready to engage in recovery. And so it can still be a really important support option for folks who want their family member or loved one to be in recovery, but are not quite there. And those groups might be great audiences actually for people to tell stories about what their loved one's journey was. And so I think that's a really important place to start. I do think also that some of the other online resources I've mentioned, such as through SAMHSA, which is the findtreatment.gov, and then the NIAAA, which is the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, both of them have sections of their website, which are specifically for family members that are concerned on how to get your loved one treatment, how to talk to your loved one about addiction, how to learn yourself about addiction. And that's really reinforcing the fact that substance use disorders are a disease and helping family members understand that because that can be really important as well. And so those are some of the resources that I direct family members to, um, in addition to um, some of the harm reduction approaches that I've mentioned and making sure that family members, for instance, have naloxone and things like that if their loved one has opioid use disorder. What services are available to Ohioans? So thankfully, some of these harm reduction approaches that I've already mentioned are available specifically to folks in Ohio. And so I've mentioned naloxone a couple of times. I mentioned syringe exchanges, but some people really do not feel comfortable going to syringe exchanges. And they're not going to feel comfortable asking their provider necessarily for naloxone. Or they have, again, family members that are using and it's not actually them themselves. And so there are services, thankfully, in Ohio for individuals to, for instance, get naloxone that's mailed to them for free. And all you have to do is watch a short training video so that you know how to recognize an overdose and how to use the product that you're asking for. And so this website uh, will also be listed on our website for the podcast, but this would be nextdistro.org. So it's HTTPS colon backslash backslash the next distro, D-I-S-T-R-O dot org slash hro and so that's a place where um, individuals can get that naloxone mail to them there's also free condoms and at-home hiv tests available at ohiv.org and that can be really nice it's it's discreetly mailed to you um, and it's a way that individuals that themselves or their loved ones are struggling can make sure that those are available and you don't need to leave home for either of those services. It's going to be mailed directly to you. And then another service that I really like is the Ohio Quit Line for Tobacco. And so there's a line that individuals can call and you're going to be connected to a specialist where you can talk about quitting smoking, you can set up a plan, and you can even get up to eight weeks of the nicotine replacement, which is not cheap, sent to you for free. And so that's going to be things like patches or gum, and that's going to help you cut down on smoking. And so for that service, people can call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. And there's even an online program that's free that can help Ohio adults quit smoking. And that's going to be at ohio.quitlogics, Q-U-I-T-L-O-G-I-X dot org slash E-N hyphen U-S slash and uh, those are backslashes. And so um, that is a place where people can get more information and services relating to quitting smoking. And all of those are Ohio specific. There are so many unique needs for our patients right now. What's the final point that you would like to emphasize with our audience today? So really, I think one of the important things to remember is that there are resources in our the areas in which we live and work that can help our patients. And just knowing how to find them can be really important. The other thing is there are some ways that you can learn a little bit more about substance use disorders and how to treat them and how to screen for them. And some of that is free and you can even get continuing education credits for that. So one of my favorite resources is the Providers Clinical Support System, which is PCSSNOW 
CME.org. And so that's a place where you can earn CMEs or CNEs while learning about some of these topics today. And that's a great place to learn more for yourself. Um, the other thing is I think it's really important to take care of yourself. We're all struggling with the pandemic just like our patients are. And sometimes I think it can be easy to forget to take care of ourselves, but we're not going to be able to take care of our patients if we're not taking care of ourselves. And frankly, also healthcare providers themselves, we're not immune to substance use disorders. And so making sure that you're taking care of yourself and that if any of this is ringing a bell for you or your colleagues and you're worried that there might be some struggle with substance use disorders, there are options for help. So specifically in Ohio, there are resources for impaired clinicians, and you can find more about that at ophp.org. It's called the One Bite Program, and that's where you can get services for yourself as well. So some of the main takeaways from today that I'd love for you to leave with are that the prevalence of substance use disorders is increasing due to unhealthy coping during this COVID-19 pandemic. Clinicians such as ourselves need to be proactive about identifying and providing resources and referrals to patients who screen positive for substance use disorders. For more resources and podcasts to help your patients stay well, please visit the CARDI OH website at www.cardi-oh.org. Thank you to our featured guests for joining us today, and a special thank you to our listeners for tuning into Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.